0: Nathan, welcome to the show.:
1: Thanks for having me on.:
0: Welcome to the protectors, I should say. It's a, it's a great to have you on, because we're going to talk about one topic that is very near and dear to my heart: the M2 Browning and the 1911. So before we get into your book, let's what's the 30,000-foot overview of who you are?
1: Oh, me. I am grew up in Massachusetts, couldn't do anything else, so I went into journalism, um, uh, worked in Massachusetts, and, uh, uh, Delaware covered Joe Biden's first presidential election back in the day, and then was a edit, reporter and editor at the Philadelphia Inquirer for many years, and then quit to write to write books, and I got into this one because it's my second book. Um, um, first one was about the cr- criminals in my family. To be totally blunt, it's a nonfiction book. Um, uh, th- I was researching a potential second book, and it involved firearms. And I sort of went down an internet rabbit hole. And I knew who Browning was, and I knew about the BAR and the 1911. When I started looking into it and I realized the enormous impact on him, I went looking for a book. You know, some would tell me n- not just about the guns, but how did he do it? Because that was the initial, you know, how does one guy do all this stuff? Because uh, no one else has ever matched him in terms of the breadth of his inventions and the import of his inventions. Uh, and when I told folks, well, what's the elevator pitch for the book? The man whose machine started World War One and won World War II. And that's pretty accurate. Um, it is? Yeah. And uh, and so I said, that's the book to write. So I was very fortunate. I was out in Utah, and I um, was hooked up with, um, he's passed now, which is very unfortunate, John Browning's oldest grandson, who uh, died in 1991, about a year ago. And he was very sharp, and he wanted a book. And I wanted a book. And so I got access to um, 40 boxes of Browning Company files that were in his basement, they're now at the U- Weber State University in Utah, and that got me on my way, and, uh, and uh, it was, it's been really interesting. The, 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 you know, p- people don't recognize the import of what Browning did. I think his weapons uh, have been so ubiquitous over so many decades that people tend to forget that one guy did them all. And, well,
0: you know, uh, you yeah. know the thing is too is to bring the story to light. And he is a special person, and let's let's backtrack to Philly, the Philly okay. Inquirer, because okay. before I came before I came to DC about eight years ago, I I ran an office for Homeland Security in Delaware, worked oh, really? in Philly for a while. Yeah. My my wife was uh, FBI in Philly, and the first thing she you know my last name is Piccolo, so everybody always thinks Brian Piccolo, the football player. The first thing she does when she gets to the office is uh, her supervisor goes last name's piccolo right and she's like yeah she goes he goes you related to tony the buck piccolo you know <laughs> of the philly mob so uh when you talk philly inquire you talk being a journalist out there there's a lot more going on in philly uh and and, and crime and uncovering it in your first book I, I read a little quick blurb about that you got a lot going on it's not just like hey one day i'm you know you got plenty of plenty of people that uh you've interviewed and done so it's good to have someone like that to bring a book about brown into life because as as it's described he is a thomas edison of guns he really yeah. is
1: yeah he really was and and he uh it's funny what you say about philly the philly mob it's interesting that the memories went back that long in the agency because a lot of the philly mob guys got taken out in the 70s and 90s and there's still mm-hmm. a mob around, but it isn't what it once was. But people people remember stuff. Yeah, Edison. You know, the thing about uh, I mean, sorry, Browning. The thing about Browning is that he had a lot of uh, indirect and direct competition back when he was doing his his major creative period was between, say, eighteen ninety something and first decade of the of the twentieth century, when most of his most significant weapons. Before, were invented, And lots of people were trying to do the same thing he was trying to do, but only one of them really um, um, passed the test of time, and that was Browning. One of the things in the book that if folks are into firearms and may not know is that Browning and George Luger, the guy that invented the Luger pistol, were involved in this almost decade-long patent fight, because Luger at one point accused Browning of stealing his pistol design and Browning turned around and accused Luger of stealing his concept for the pistol, and it's really quite fascinating because one of the things—it's helpful to be a reporter when you do books like this. I, I came, I dug out these two uh, uh, um, court transcripts from 1901 and 1907, and that's important because one of the things about Browning is that he left no papers in the in the sense we think of them. He never used blueprints didn't have working drawings, he didn't have change orders, you know, he didn't have memos to the factory floor in, uh, in, in um, Winchester. So we never really knew how he did what he did. And in these two depositions, you hear for the first time anywhere Browning's voice in his own words talking, and that of his brother Matt who was also really important, and his brother Ed, half-brother Ed, and it's, it's important in all sorts of ways because there's an explicit de- description of how they worked. And also, it, it shows that the guy who made all these great prototypes, did not con- not the guy who conceived them, but the guy who made them, was Ed. <laughs> it wasn't Browning. Uh, and that's really interesting because you go to great places like Cody or the museum in, uh, in, in Utah, and you think Browning made these. Well, Browning thought of the idea, and he told Ed what to do. It's stand next to each other, uh, but Ed actually did the machining and Ed came up with some patents himself. So that was really, it was really interesting to, to come across that.
0: You know, the Browning weapon system, and I'm going to call it the weapon systems because they've, you know, everybody else is like copied off the 1911 since inception. So many, yeah. so many different, like me, I, before we did the, uh, we were talking in a pre-interview, I showed you, I have a Sig Scorpion 1911, which is, I think one of the best 1911s out there for the price and it, you know that is one gun where I can shoot with my right and left hand and hit the same hit the same spot on the target. I love the 1911. I don't care what you people out there think. 1911s are good to go. But the other thing is being a private uh, in the army in the 1990s and I was a part of a self-propelled artillery unit. And being on top of the the M109 and having the Browning M2 that's been essentially the same Browning M2 that it's always been. And it's still to this day being used. It, that is absolutely amazing. I mean, yeah. seriously.
1: And no one's ever been able to replace it. The The U.S. Army tried four or five times. And the Belgian folks that kind of butcher the French name, Fabrique Nationale, the mm-hmm. here, in in Liege, Belgium, they tried once and maybe twice. People always wanted something that was lighter because it is a heavy weapon. I mean, weight-wise, and, and make some other changes to it. And they never succeeded. One um, version, I think it was made by, I want to say GM, but it might have been another firm, we did go into production and was mounted on M1 tanks uh, for a couple of years. And they pulled it off and put the M2 back up because no one's ever been able to come up with something better. You can't. It's used like in 80 countries. It's still made. I think two makers in the U S and one and FN in Belgium. Uh, and, uh, it's astonishing that, you know, let's go back to the 1911, if I might, for a second, mm-hmm. it's not just the 1911. I'm sure you know this, but yeah, all most, I won't say all most modern. semi automatic handguns use one or another of Browning's original designs that date back to, really 1894 1896 if you go to the utah um browning museum you'll see in it a gun from 1894 that when you look at it it's going to look like a modern handgun it's actually gas operated he tried to use a gas operation system in his first gun but here's an 1894 browning is the guy who figured out where everything goes in a handgun the the the, the slide the magazine the firing pin the block the trigger. You know, look at the Mauser with the big thing in front of the trigger, the broom handle Mauser. Totally, I mean, mm-hmm. fire that. And so Browning was the guy that figured it all, out and it lasted. It's past the test of time.
0: I uh, I'm not the only one that looks at firearms as like their artwork. I really do. I mean, the that be able to shoot something five to ten thousand rounds with very minimal cleaning. Obviously, with nineteen eleven, you got to clean them. But just if you think about the semi-automatic weapons that are out there nowadays and the accuracy and everything that goes into it, it just – it really is a work of art. I showed you – I have a couple lever actions on my wall. Mm -hmm. I show everybody that um, there's something about a weapon. And it's not about destruction and death and, and violence. It's something about pushing a projectile through the air and landing in the same spot over and over again. It's like target yeah. archery. It's the same thing. It's like, it's very cool.
1: Yeah, it's, you know, I shoot, I'm not that good, but I shoot competitively in USPSA and, and, and steel plate stuff. Uh, and I try and explain to people who have no idea what that's like, what the challenge is. And as you know, there's tons of different factors that go into trying to be good in a particular stage. And, and one of the things I tell folks is sort of like, you know, Off with deadly weapons. I mean, (laughs) it's it's you know, and I don't mean to stress the deadly weapon side of it because, as you know, safety is paramount. But but um, it's controlling a machine in your hand, and I talk about that in the book. One of the reasons why Browning's early pistols became so popular in Europe—he sold million over a million in a short period of time—was because people had never seen anything like it before. And all of a sudden, I'll show I'll show you one if your viewers can see it. This is a Made in 1908, a Browning. Oh, yeah, a Browning um, FN 1900, and it was made from 1908 to um, to, um, 1910, I think, when the FN 1910 took over, and or maybe a little later anyway. Um, and no one had ever seen anything like that. It's this amazing little machine that you, you pull the trigger, the bullet, com- the cartridge comes out, there's a flash, the bullet, the brass, the recoil in your hand. And to us, it's common, but back then, it's like, "What is this?" And uh-huh. That was a huge appeal to Browning's firearms. I love it. I
0: can yeah. I see that again. I gotta. Oh, sure. uh, yeah, I love it. And and Nathan's showing a picture of it's just wow. I love. Yeah,
1: it's it. and you can sort of see how well engineered it, is, how well yeah. it is. And Browning designed it. You can't see it, but this whole mechanism—it's screwed together rather than machine. The the slide has two, three pieces to it rather than one. That was because machinery just really couldn't do it. The kinds of complex machinery yeah. that he needed to do to make the slide, the, the slide, the block, the, the firing pin all in one piece was was hard. And his next gun incorporated all that to one 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 unit. I love it. Yeah.
0: Well, Nathan, the book is The Guns of John Moses Browning.
1: It's a good read, too, if I might say. It it's is. Not, it's not a. You, don't, you won't have to slog.
0: I just started it, so you have to give me a little time to read it. There's only a couple books in my life that I've been able to just sit and read straight through. <laughs> so I, I love having you on, and it's great talking, and uh, especially yeah, with welcome. someone from Philly. And I like the idea that people we need this history now. You don't want to lose this, and like you said, there's no really, there's nothing out there. And if about Browning, how do you not have a book about this? Maybe a couple articles in guns and ammo here and there over the years, but really you need an in depth historical look at it because you don't want to lose history. That's right. Sure. This was
1: the, the first one. There's one that was helpful to me by his brother Jack because the family gave me the unexpurgated manuscript because it was published about 50, 60 years ago, and it's mostly about his youth. But there was good stuff that was cut out, like how he actually broke up with Winchester. And that's not in the published version. That's in the version that the family gave me. So it's very
0: useful. I got to do a whole show about lever action someday because it's a lever action life out there. That's one of my favorites. Uh, Let me know. Yeah, definitely. Oh, there we go. That's our next (laughs) show. After I read your book, then we'll have another show. Seriously,
1: we'll have a part two of this.
0: Because when you get me on a roll, we could talk guns all day long. Nathan, I appreciate you. you coming on.
1: Jason, thank you.